Hello, 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 and welcome back to another video on this channel. Today, we are going to be talking about Genesis 20. We're talking about Genesis 20 right here. We're told to wear a mask as we're recording in our school. So technically, I'm wearing a mask right now. It just really isn't over my mouth. I, I, I'm, I'm slightly more afraid about school rules because I have violated it several times. So I will be wearing my mask <laughs> halfly during the entire recording. So Josh, do you want to start with Genesis 20? All right. Now, Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev <laughs> and lived between Kadesh and Shore. For a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Ab Abimelech in one dream night and, and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not to say she is my sister? And did it, she also say he is my brother? I have done this with clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to a dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, but I, so I have kept you from sinning against me. This is why I did not let you touch her. Now, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return to her, you, will be, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. What is your thoughts? It just mirrors the, the previous episode about the <laughs> Pharaoh. Indeed. But I guess there, there's a bit more mercy shown here. <laughs> in that because one does not know, even though one has transgressed the rules of the law, it doesn't really matter. Indeed. I think that is a very interesting point, my friend, because I think, of course, this ties back memories of our previous discussion, which you should go check out if you haven't checked out. Yes, but I, I forgot which uh, chapter it is in. But essentially, we were talking a lot about the morality and the interaction of the law and of uh, of, of the people and how God is uh, relating to that idea. Now, what I think is very interesting here is the idea that God here actually would help you in a clear conscience and does recognize your motives. Every time you're doing something, it's not just solely about your actions, but about also what you're thinking behind it. Yeah, and shall we continue? Here? No, but what I think is also very interesting here is that Abraham is, seems to be a morally decrepit person. It is not a very good act of Abraham to do this because it <laughs> seems that he is a bit weird going around saying that his wife is a sister. But also, it seems even weirder <laughs> such that the kings are trying to take the wife because the wife is at least like 100 years old. I don't get why they're trying to do this. But, but apart from this, I'll continue. I continue reading. I, I, think, I think George is totally right. I didn't notice that Sarah was a hundred. She is quite old by now, I think. So I think it is quite comical in this uh, scenario, but I think it is quite interesting. Uh, and then he says, Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged, how have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never have been done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. I think this is a very interesting point because here we surely, I think we can understand Abraham's dilemma such that he has to say, otherwise they might kill her. But at the same time, it seems that even if she, he said, oh, this is actually my wife, they would not have killed her because surely these people had a fear of the Lord within them. 
So what do you think Abraham should have done? I personally, I think that, as I've said before, the morally good act is the act in which they, they are, what do you call it? They, they indeed are acting in a good way. That means not lying, even despite the fear of um, persecution, despite the truth. Yeah, I, I think perhaps we can go back to a distinction between like, everyday morality, what Hegel called the ethical substance, which is quite confusing because <laughs> what Hegel calls the ethical, we normally think about as the moral. And uh, the ethical act, pure and simple. And I think in terms of everyday morality, there's nothing wrong with Abraham. So doing this small lie, it's not a very big lie, because in some sense, Sarah is his sister, although he's just not disclosing of his truth, which of course is also a lie, but perhaps a lie that is not as egregious as a lie may be in order to save his life. However, it, it still rests uncomfortable with me that we can say that Abraham has done something good. Instead, I think he has done something reasonable and understandable, but something that is not ethical. Indeed, I, I completely agree with you in this situation. Now, now let's turn back uh, to the passage. And I think it is very interesting here because it says that he, people who are not in this place also fear God. What, what are your thoughts on that? Because, of course, Abraham's going around thinking they do not fear God or morality. But in, in fact, they actually do fear God. What does it mean to fear God, Josh? I think it's a very interesting thing because sometimes I think we see what we see is that God is itself almost used as an equation or is equated to morality itself. Because if we look in uh, Dostoevsky, he says, uh, Shigalev, I think, is in, in Demons. He says, uh, there is no nation without its God, for they all, for they all recognize good and evil. And in some sense, here he's saying that, well, the morality is, is, is God. And in the sense of fearing God, they're fearing or actually have an understanding of what's right and wrong. And especially in those times, they would be emphasizing the knowledge of good and evil through a divine agent. I, it makes me uncomfortable every time you, there's this slight equation between God and morality. <laughs> to repeat one of the quotes that I really like from Luther, said, out other people, uh, when, when saying to him, like, let God be good, Luther, let God be good, Luther replied, let God be God. And I agree with you in the sense that I think that it isn't easy to just say, God, well, God is good and that's the end of the problem. I think that there are other things that we must think of as well as it, in the sense that what we're talking about is just as much a mess ethical question as it is an ethical question itself. And I think you soon realize perhaps that it is the classic Dostoevsky quote, not in its Sartre in terms, but rather it's more without God, there are no values in a, in a meta-ethical meta sense that when you when you take away the, the being, the understanding of this world, the divine, you, you get rid of any of this kind of meaningful substance in the world in which you can constitute as morality. And perhaps mm -hmm. that is the, perhaps the more complicated understanding beneath the simple equation, perhaps. But you know, I also want to challenge you, mm -hmm. but perhaps we're going on the tangent here, on your distinction between the ethical and the meta-ethical. What do you exactly mean here? Because for me, it seems like this distinction is slightly superfluous. superfluous since a truly great, a truly, I guess, complete ethical theory must necessarily have certain decision, decision procedures and decide whether an act is good or bad. And in, in what sense, does, can I justify my own decision procedures? 
And in this sense, the meta-ethical cannot be separated from the ethical. Well, I'll disagree with you in that sense. I, I would agree that ethical theories are fundamentally developed and based on its meta-ethical theories, but, but they are un, indeed inseparable because if we do not know what constitutes of the good or what the good is, we will never be able to understand anything about how we should be good because there are, as I think you say, they are one in the same question, but it is the, the analytic philosophers which have separated them into the two domains. And if, if we're... So would you agree with this kind of separation or? Well, I think that it is, it is, I agree with it in its practicality in the sense that the, it is two different approaches to a same discussion about what is ethical. Because I think that the moment you answer the meta-ethical question, you once again would answer the ethical question. Though the ethical, the ethical is more of the, the applica appl application of ontology after you get the on ontology. I don't even know what it is. The ontic. When you get the ontic done, you get the ontology, and in the same way, in the same way, in the same procedure, you get um, the ethical from the meta-ethical. Okay. And would you equate God with the ethical or the meta-ethical? Or well, I think I will equate God. Well, I don't want to say equate God with anything because I, yeah. I, I've, I've grown to be some sense of I want to say nihilist towards the good, but rather, rather saying that the good cannot be understood without an understanding of the divine. I think that that is the approach such that God and God for practical reasons, or at least in the understanding of the world, is one and the same. And that a direct understanding of the good would be impossible, save through the lens of God, making it such that even if it does exist, trying to search for the good beyond God would be a, a, almost a superfluous or a futile attempt. Though I would challenge you on your equation here mm -hmm. with a Kantian objection. You know, if you try to ground the good in God, then it seems like there is a certain pathological motivation that is mixed into your act of doing good. That is, this good follows from my understanding of God. When I'm doing this good act, I'm following God's commandments, or I'm following my own understanding of God. I am following the divine. And in this sense, you're trying to be moral by, through God, undermines itself because you've gotten these empirical contents. Or would maybe you... How would you justify this? And would you also challenge the entire Kantian framework? Well, I think that the Kantian framework is fundamentally developed, at least built off the framework that I am postulating, some idea that the only reason we know the good is because we have a fundamental understanding of some sense of perfection. And in that sense, you would say that it is fundamentally quite a theistic concept in that, in kind of that, in kind of perhaps a bit of a convoluted way. But I think in some ways we're working towards one and the same goal. Though I think that even in the Kantian um, kind of idea, it's very difficult to still understand what is good. What are these laws without some sense of the divine anyhow? Mm -hmm. But how, you know, what I'm struggling to, to puzzle out is how would you try to be good through, or practically, how would your understanding of God lead to good actions? Well, I think that it is about understanding God and by understanding God and I think understanding God is a very broad term, but it's it's deeply related to our understanding of being. At least I, I've quite I've quite grown quite in love with Tillich's idea about God being being itself, not not in a not in a metaphysical sense, but more as it is the understanding of a God comes from an understanding of being and the world, or at least understanding of the world, the meaning in it, your place in the world, some Aristotelian understanding of the world, based on some sense of theistic structure. And it's only when you have such a structure 
that you then start understanding what you're meant to do. So it's not something you directly get and you get a direct set of commands, but rather you that set of you get more of a structure instead of a command which points you towards a certain direction. So the understanding of God is just the understanding of the world in some sense, or the understanding of being with a capital B. Well, I'll say that the understanding of God, well, the un is the understanding of the world. So, so it's not necessarily the understanding of the world is then leads to an understanding of the God, but is through the, un the lens of God that you understand the world, mm -hmm. or at least the ethical realm of the world, instead of like saying, oh, this this water is H two O. That's perhaps not related to the God question. Yeah, and I think now now we can circle back to the idea of the fear of God. <laughs> There's the famous line, right? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm sorry I'm drinking your water, but I deeply I'm very thirsty. Oh, uh, by the way, I always spit into my water. I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, I don't think this is very COVID, but... Do not fret, my friends. You're both deeply vaccinated, I think. No, I'm not deeply vaccinated. <laughs> okay. Leave my friends are not here. Oh, well. Do not worry. I really don't mind too much. <laughs> I think we're both safe. I mean, he basically stays at home the entire day, so I honestly don't know how he could possibly get COVID from anyone. <laughs> I don't think... Yeah, I don't think I can get COVID. Uh, but let's go back to the point. What do you think about the quote, the fear of God is the beginning of <laughs> wisdom? I think fear in this sense is not some morbid terror of a certain being, but rather a sense of respect, because I think with respect does come a certain sense of fear and at least a sense of awe. It's kind of like the idea that if we truly believed in God, we'll be living our lives in a drastically different fashion. And it is that drastically different fashion which stems from that fear of God. Actually, this is very interesting because Kant had an extended discussion on respect as an emotion in the second critique, Critique of Practical Reason, because he thought that respect, in some sense, is a, one of the principal ethical emotions. And what he was trying to get at with respect is the feeling that arises when you realize the unbridgeable gulf between yourself and the moral law, <laughs> or between yourself, your own capabilities, and a truly moral action. <laughs> and then there's this complete gap that is the respect and perhaps transposing onto your understanding of the quote. What this is saying is only once you've understood almost once imp your impossibility to do good, could you begin to be wise would you agree with me? I think that's a very interesting idea, and perhaps perhaps we could tie it back to this idea, such that surely everyone would have some sense of fear of God or some sense of respect of God. Though I think that at the same time, we shouldn't we shouldn't give them too much credit, or at least Abimelech, because if God literally appeared to you in a dream, surely you'll be afraid of them. <laughs> it's not something which I would say is, oh, this person always respected God. But I mean, even for the greatest atheists, if God appeared to them in a dream, I think they'll be pretty afraid. Apart from on those like extreme new atheists who just call everything a hallucination, which I don't necessarily think is always the best way to go around doing things, just in case it is indeed real. But let's continue our discussion on um, the text. And it says, uh, Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle, male and female slaves, and gave them to Ab Abraham, and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, 
My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to, to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, his female slave, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech uh, household from Kasim because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. What are your thoughts on this final passage of Genesis? I, <laughs> I don't know, Josh. Uh, what are your thoughts? I have to admit, I, don't, I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say I am fully, um, completely sure of what is meant in this no, I think passage. it's just kind of like but, a plot resolution. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. I think that that is a very good thing to point out is that like, I mean, it's nice to psychoanalyze everything, but also at the same time, some parts of the story are very important as a plot resolution. Yeah. And I think at that, we could perhaps end off this discussion on uh, Genesis 20. Hope you've enjoyed um, this discussion. I don't even because think- Because Josh it... has to go back home to have a date with his, <laughs> with his girlfriend. Indeed, I do not actually have a date tonight. It's just that I have to return home because my mother is picking me up later. So my friend has a convoluted idea of reality. His truth in, in Heideggerian terms is no longer revealing, but it's just random postulation <laughs> about absolute. So, no, no, no <laughs> postulations can be necessary. As God said, no, no, not as God said, as Kant said, <laughs> in order for one to have the concept of the highest good to ground the idea of morality, you must postulate God and the immortality of, soul, of the soul. At that, I hope you've enjoyed this live stream. Stay safe. Thank you for watching. I'll see you in the next one and see you soon.